as I said, we continue in Mark, and we're in chapter 14. Let us give our attention to God's perfect word. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, being Jesus, by stealth and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And they sent two of his disciples and said to, and said to them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for me. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. He came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to the man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I 
tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for such an honest book you've given us, a recording of history that is not only glamorous of our heroes, but very honest, very realistic. Lord, I pray that we may have a realistic view of ourselves even more so because of this text. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, a few months ago, um, our dryer um, stopped working as well as it always did. And uh, we'd open it up, it'd turn itself off, and the clothes are still wet. So I knew the problem. There's this little thing inside called a moisture sensor, right? And so it senses when the clothes are done. So I said, I just need to replace that thing. So I look, what do you do? You go on YouTube, right? I looked on how to do that. It was quite complicated. You have to pull the whole thing open. I was like, ah. So I, I procrastinate a while, and it, you know, it continues to not work all that well. And uh, finally, I give up. And I'm like, I'm just going to call a repair guy. So I give him a call repair guy. He comes, he says... Now, your problem's not that. It's your dryer vent. The hose is, all, is probably all full of um, lint. And he looks outside and he can see from outside that it doesn't look good. And so he gives me a reference to a guy to call. So I call that guy. He comes out on Friday to, to, to clear this thing out. First thing he does, he unhooks the hose on the back and he just starts pulling out handfuls of lint. I'm like, this is not good. <laughs> And so, I mean, before it's over, I mean, it's just this huge mess. And it, and it was all, it was all um, stopped up. Well, that was the problem, right? So I thought I had a little problem. I thought it must just be some little sensor on the dryer. But I think that a lot of us are kind of like my dryer vent hose. We have no idea how big the problem is. We think we're pretty good people, and we kind of have it all together. But hidden out of view, we aren't as good as we think or everyone else thinks. Like my dryer hose. Well, this morning, we're going to encounter Jesus instituting a new covenant but the reason we need this covenant is because of things like my dryer hose is there's a much deeper problem. I mean, well, you know what? By the end of it, he was blowing it out. So the vent is on the second story. It looked like it was snowing in my side yard. There's like lint everywhere. It's just like unbelievable. So it's also, a side note, it's one of the most common causes of house fires. So I learned a lesson there. Make sure you clean your dryer vents. Free tip there. Anyway, we're encountering Jesus instituting the new covenant. And uh, in order for this to make sense, we're going to have to give a lot of background. This is a very Jewish text. And most of, most of you just looking out there don't look very Jewish. And so it's going to take a little bit of work. And so just bear with me. It'll, have, it'll be a much, much richer passage when we understand some of this Jewish background. Okay, look there on page 7. You see the outline. Four points. The last Passover, the end of the Old Covenant. First, secondly, the first Lord's Supper, the beginning of the New Covenant. Third, the disciples, a contrast between Judas and Peter. And then fourth, the anointing of um, Jesus by Mary, a love offering. Okay, that first one, look at verse 12. All right, the last Passover. You know, many people call this the Last Supper, but really this is the last legitimate Passover. And we're going to look at, at that. So verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where shall we go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They're good Jews, and everybody celebrates Passover. They're like, Master, it's time. Where are we going to go prepare this? Now, this is, if you're tracking with us, this is Thursday of Passion Week. 
Remember, we've been tracking through that, right? Last Sunday or the um, previous Sunday was the triumphal entry, right? And we're moving through. What happens on Friday? This is Thursday. Friday is the crucifixion. Okay, so we're under 24 hours before Jesus is going to die, and he's celebrating Passover with his disciples. But look at those next verses. Look at how specific they are. Look at verse 13 to 15. He said to two of his disciples, he said, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water. Okay, pause there. Men don't usually carry jars of water in that day, so he'd stand out. Okay, guy carrying a jar of water. When you meet him, follow that guy, whatever house he enters, go to the master of that house and say to him, where is your guest room that I may eat it with, my, with the disciples? Or that the, the teacher says, okay? So then... Um, He'll show you a large room. It's already furnished. It's ready. Okay. What's interesting about this is, could you, is there any way to know all this unless divine revelation, right? I mean, he has to be God. I mean, it's so specific. If you think just back last week, you remember we were talking about the other direction. He didn't even know when his second coming is. Right? Jesus said, I don't know when I'm coming back. A few weeks before that, he didn't even know if there would be figs on a fig tree. Okay. So the man doesn't know if there's figs on a fig tree. He doesn't know when he's coming back, but he can give all this very specific details about Passover meal. Okay, those are kind of in contradiction, right? What you see is the two natures of Christ. He is fully God and fully man. It's a mystery to us. How in the world could both of these be in one person? But we have it. Here he has very divine knowledge, very detailed. And then 16, you see, the disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he told them. So they prepare the Passover. You know, it's interesting. Uh, that repairman that came that created that snow cloud of, of a lint in my side yard, um, he was Jewish, had a very thick accent. I was like, I'm pretty sure this guy's Jewish. And so we had this great conversation. And I asked him, hey, um, can I show you my Hebrew Bible? He said, yeah, when we're done. And, um, and so um, he did a fantastic job. If you ever need your dryer vent cleaned, uh, let me know. He's, he did a great job. But um, when we're done, I opened up my Hebrew Bible and I said, can, can you read this? And so we looked at Isaiah 53. And uh, it's probably one of the clearest places in the Old Testament speaking of Christ. And I uh, just had this great conversation. But I was talking to him about the sermon. I said, hey, I'm going to preach this week. It's a very Jewish passage. He knows all that stuff, right? He grew up with that. And we talked about pastors. Oh, yeah, we celebrate for two weeks. And it's, it's the biggest of all the holidays uh, that, that we celebrate. Do you know the story of that? Do you know what Passover even represents? I'll help you. Okay, so rewind. Uh, the Jews, way back early in their history, they're in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. It's a miserable situation. Things are terrible. And God raises up Moses. Moses comes in to, the, to Pharaoh, the leader, and says, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? Nope. So then God starts inflicting plagues on them, right? Plague after plague, just destroying Egypt. Right? And they won't listen. So finally we get to the 10th plague. And then it's really getting serious. The 10th plague is the angel of death is going to come kill the firstborn in every home. But he tells his people, go kill a little spotless lamb and then spread the blood over your doorframe. And when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your house. That's where it gets its name, Passover. will pass over your house. Pretty cool, huh? There's a lot of symbolism in this in connection. We'll get to it in just a minute. But this is where it comes from. And so the Jews were told, remember that meal and do it every year. So they did that every year. If you look through your Old Testament, 
What's like the story that comes up almost more than any other? It's like on God's resume, his calling card. Here's what I, I did. I was that guy. It is the, it is the um, Exodus, isn't it? Over and over, he says, the, I am the God that brought my people out. And so this is kind of the high point. And so they celebrated that for 1,446 years, or give or take, right? So this is 1446 BC, give or take. And uh, so for almost 1,500 years, they do that every year. Faithful Jews celebrate Passover, remembering God really set us free, really delivered us. Okay, so now where are we? Jesus is celebrating that very meal. Passover lamb has just been sacrificed. They're eating that, and that is the setting. This is the last great Passover. And in it, that Passover lamb was killed. And, but in 24 hours, who else is going to be killed? Jesus. Isn't that cool? He didn't, and I told him that. He's like, whoa, that's cool. He didn't know that, you know, that as we celebrate um, uh, Easter, and that's the same time as Passover, right? that Jesus died at Passover. Well, there's a lot of um, symbolism there, right? Because Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he was sacrificed. I think that's cool. Okay, all the parallels. Here's four parallels. God's judgment brought death to those outside the covenant. God's judgment brought death to those outside the covenant. So when the angel of death came, if you didn't have, if you weren't the people of God, there was death. It's also true in the second coming, right? Those outside the covenant will be judged and there will be death. Additionally, salvation came through a substitute. There was a lamb that died. Jesus died for us. In another way, it required personal action. You couldn't just be a Jew. You had to actually go smear the blood. If you didn't do that over your door, even if they were Jewish, there would be death. Kids, you don't get to heaven because of your parents. You get to heaven because you have to place your faith in Christ. Just like the Jews, they didn't get to heaven because they were just, hey, I'm a Jew. No, they had to obey God. You have to place your faith in Christ. You have to say, I'm sorry for my sins. I shouldn't have done all these things that I did. Please forgive me. It's true of all of us. In Egypt, lastly, they were slaves. We also were slaves to sin, weren't we? And God broke us free. There's a lot more parallels, but there's at least those. So this is one of the two big things that the Jews had. They had this, Passover day, and what was the other thing? Circumcision. Circumcision was the sign they were part of the covenant. Okay, so in a couple minutes, we're going to talk about what happened in the new covenant. Okay, that's the old covenant, those two things. But they practiced it over and over again. This was all just a shadow of what was to come. So that's our second point, the first Lord's Supper. So that was the last Passover, last legitimate one at least. And then now we have the first Lord's Supper. Look at verse 22 to 24. And as they were eating, they took bread. And after blessing it, they broke it and gave it to them. Jesus did. Take this is my body. Well, that's quite a statement. This is my body. Now, some read this and say, well, this means that his, the bread, when you actually do communion, it actually becomes God's, Jesus' real body. Didn't it, doesn't it say, this is my body? Well, there's two problems with that understanding. One is, who's holding the bread as this is being said? Jesus. And he's kind of using his body right then, right? And so it can't be his body because he has his body. Okay, that's one. Does that make sense? The other is, is Jesus often talks like this. He's called himself a door. He's called himself a cornerstone. He says, I am the, um, the cornerstone. He says all kinds of things. I am a lamb. I am a fountain. I am a rock. John 6, long before he says, I am the bread of life. 
So this is very normal for Jesus to say, I am something that we could understand it. So when he says, this is my body. So we understand it this way, that Christ is not present physically or locally in the elements, but that by the Holy Spirit, he, we truly encounter him, both body and blood, spiritually, for our spiritual nourishment, through faith. The supper brings Christ to, the, to us in a real spiritual, non-physical, and mysterious way. It's important to know, when you're doing communion, that's what we're doing. Okay, so, but think about this. It wasn't just Passover that you had that lamb. The whole sacrificial system, right? They had, there were all kind of animals dying in the Old Testament, weren't there? And all of that pointed forward shadows of Christ. And if you heard the term substitutionary atonement, substitutionary atonement, let me explain this. Kids, let me tell you a story. So there, there, this, is, this is not a true story, but imagine a judge and he's in this village and there's someone stealing food, but they can't figure out who's stealing the food. And the judge says, whoever gets caught stealing that food, they're going to be whipped. That should stop the stealing, but it doesn't. Someone keeps stealing food, and they finally catch them. And so he puts on his, his judge robes, and he's sitting in the judgment seat, and they bring the person who's stealing it to him. It's his own mother, his aged mother, who's not well. And he thinks to himself, if she's whipped, she'll probably die. So he says, I can't, I can't not whip her, but I can't whip her. It'd kill her. And so he, he climbs down. He takes off his robes and exposes his own back, and he gets whipped so his mom doesn't have to. That is substitutionary atonement, that someone else substitutes for you. That's what Jesus did. Someone had to take the judgment of God. It couldn't be a lamb. It had to be a person. It had to be a perfect person. There's only one of them, it's Jesus. Hebrews 9 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I hope you see this continuity from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the sacrificial system to now Jesus replaces that. Have you ever wondered how Old Testament Jews get to heaven? Have you ever thought about that? Actually, the same way you get to heaven. They, by faith, as they were doing these animal sacrifices, were believing that God would send a Messiah. So the Jews in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. You, on the other side, look back by faith to the cross. Same way. They're saved just like you are. Okay, so Jesus is instituting this new thing, right? He says, this is my body. He took the cup. Look, verse 23. Given thanks, he gave it, and they all drank it. He said, this blood is the, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. These words are short, but are, are of profound significance. This is our second sacrament, right? Our other one is um, baptism, right? So um, circumcision gets replaced with baptism, and then Passover gets replaced by Jesus with this, the Lord's Supper, which is communion. It signifies our deliverance by the Lamb of God. 1 Corinthians 11 says this well, in the same way he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Listen to this. For as often as you drink this cup, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We've been doing that now. So did 1,500 years Passover. We've now been doing um, the Lord's Supper for 2,000 years. We don't know when he's coming back, but we'll continue to do it. And we declare his death until he comes. 
you know what else is cool? Jesus said he's not going to drink any wine until he does it with you. You know what that means? Jesus cannot wait for you to arrive in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? He's waiting expectantly for your arrival. He loves you. He cares about you. I it's cool. It'd be like a husband who makes this beautiful meal for his wife and she's running late. And so he just sits there at the table with the food. He's not going to eat it without her. Or he's just waiting for her arrival. He loves her. Jesus is like that. He loves you. He is your husband in heaven who's waiting at the dinner table for you to arrive. Not really. He's at by the right hand of God. But you get the picture, don't you? Okay, so now we get, you get that. This is, that's the core of this whole passage. Now let's look at all the people that are surrounding it. Okay, we have some characters. That brings us to our third point. The disciples, Judas and Peter. Remember, Jesus just spent three years, night and day, training these guys. Right? If anyone could get anyone ready for any mission, it was Jesus. And so we get to this. This is the last meal they're going to eat together. And right in the middle of it, look at verse 18. He says, And as they reclined at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Man, that's wild. One of Jesus' own would betray him. It's so familiar to you, it's hard for it to be surprising. But if you didn't know it, it'd be shocking that one from his own inner circle that he had trained would be the one who betrayed him to his enemies. But at least Jesus had 11, 11 other faithful guys, right? To hand the baton to. We'll skip down to 26. They sang a hymn. They went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Oh, great. As it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You mean after all that, three years of training and everyone's going to abandon him. These are the guys that he's going to hand Christianity to? The baton to like lead this movement into, into the whole world. Every one of them. So he's, he's quoting Zechariah 13.7. And he's saying, this prophecy will be fulfilled in you when the shepherd is struck, all the sheep will scatter. Okay, and then Peter steps forward. Peter often does this. He's a bold guy. He steps forward and has something to say. Look at what he says. He says, verse 29, even though they all fall away, I'm sure all the disciples love that, right? Even if they all fall away, I'm not going to. Really? Jesus just said, you're going to do this. And there's a prophecy that says so. Peter says, I, I'm not going to. How foolish. How foolish of him. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter still is arguing with Jesus. Isn't that crazy? He comes back to him. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter did not know himself very well. Peter did not know himself very well. I mean, he's arguing with Jesus, saying, no, I'm going to, and then they all agree, right? They're all like, no, we're all, we won't leave you. They're going to call Jesus a liar and then say, yeah, we're going to beat the prophecy. Wow. Would we be so foolish? How well do we know ourselves? How well do you know yourself? Would we ever be so foolish? How self-aware are you? In college, I was on a college retreat and a speaker said, write on a piece of paper everything that you will never, it's a sin you'll never commit in your life. Gave us a minute. He said, ball it up. He said, you shouldn't write anything on that list. 
You do not know yourselves. You are capable of far worse sins, given the right circumstances, than you could ever imagine. That was a sobering moment for 21-year-old me. There is something very helpful about failing miserably. There is something very helpful about, I know it sounds weird, doesn't it? Very helpful about failing miserably. You know, it helps us have a realistic view of ourselves, our dependence on God. It helps us be humble and not judge others and not think too highly of ourselves. It's a painful reminder that we cannot save ourselves by our own self-effort. Remember, Jesus just instituted the new covenant. I remind you the connections back. Do you remember Abraham? Remember Father Abraham, kids? Had many sons, many sons. Yep, you know it. All right, so Father Abraham, uh, God, when he made the covenant with Father Abraham, it was only God who ratified it. What it meant was it was an unconditional covenant. It meant it was a, a covenant without conditions. That God said, I'm going to do my part no matter what you do, Abraham. Now, that's a good deal. That's the way the covenants have been through all of Scripture. So same with the new covenant, right? When, they, when he was serving that meal, right, the, the, the um, Lord's Supper, they had not earned it. They did not deserve it. He said, this is my body and this is my blood. It was just a gift. That's what it's always been. See, but the disciples immediately respond to that and say, not me. Man, I'm faithful. I'm going to stick with you to death. How foolish. How foolish. Over and over, the disciples failed Jesus. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. They cry. I mean, think, this is the early, so who does the early church have as its heroes? These guys. And they've got this Bible, right? Or it's, it's coming together. And these accounts of their failures over and over again. Now, that's kind of awkward, isn't it? To be a leader and be preaching from a book that basically shows all your greatest blunders as a leader for everyone to know. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, how, does, how is Peter painted in all these stories? We've seen many times in which he's doing foolish things. Humiliating, even. They learn they cannot put their hope in the apostles, but only in Christ. It helped probably the apostles stay humble, right? They couldn't deny that they had failed big. It helped them have a realistic view of themselves. Again, I ask, do you have a realistic view of yourself? I want to share a story with you. Not because I'm proud of it, because I think it might be of some use to you. A few of you know, a few weeks ago, um, I was out uh, with my wife, and uh, we stopped to uh, get some hot tea uh, to drive through, and they gave us two big cups of boiling water and uh, filled right to the brim. So we pull and park. I say, this isn't safe. And so I opened my door to pour some of it out so it would be safer. My, I, in backstory, I'd had a pretty lousy day. I was not in a really good mood. I'd even texted my prayer triad already on that drive saying, please pray for me. My heart's not in a really great place. And so then I'm trying to pour out this water. Well, getting the lid off, I managed to spill it all over myself in which the knee-jerk response is to release the thing, which then just dumps boiling water all over my hand. And so I get second-degree burn. Some of you saw those off, all across the back of my hand. That part isn't all that interesting. What happens next is I actually, I lost it. This is not, not normal, but I lost it. I was so fuming mad at the whole situation that I got out of my car saying an, an inappropriate word 
kicked my car, threw down something, and was in a rage. That was actually me. That wasn't some other guy. That was me. Humiliating. I'm glad none of you were there. But that was me. You see, that God used that as a helpful reminder to me, you know what? You are capable of losing it. You are capable of humiliating yourself. You are not as good as you think. See, when we fail, God can use it in a very instructive way. Do you have a realistic view of yourself? Parents, I encourage you, before your children, humble yourselves. It will be very instructive for them. Husbands to your wives, wives to your husbands, humble yourselves. Before each other, humble yourselves. I mean, if we cannot be honest here about our failings, what in the world are we doing here, folks? Right? If this is not a place that we can own our sin, because we don't have to own it. Someone else already paid for it. Remember that covenant that Jesus just did? Remember the the body and the blood? He was paying the price for every failing. It is no longer yours. It's no longer mine. It is Jesus's. I am washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, and so are you. It gives us freedom to be real. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It is very, very healing to acknowledge your sins and know that you are loved by God and forgiven. And it's so instructive for others. It also helps. It's a great preventive thing, right? To just be able to own our sins. It helps me. I'm less likely to lose it again by acknowledging. I'd already acknowledged it to my prayer triad and to others and ask them to pray. You too should do the same. God instituted a covenant without conditions. I am not in the covenant because of what a great guy I am. It is because of Jesus, just like with Abraham. I hope you see the significance of this. It takes such a weight off our shoulders. And that brings us to our one great character in our whole story. It goes back to the beginning. I skipped this for a reason. Go back and look at the beginning of the passage. Fourth and finally, the anointing of Jesus by Mary. Jesus often does this. He holds up and praises a lady doing something good while he's correcting and rebuking his disciples. You know, this book was not written by men. This was a book written by God. It is a very, very honest book. Look at those verses, three to five. It says, and while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came. Okay, so a, a room full of men, all the disciples. She comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment worth a year's wages. That's what 300 denarii means. Whatever you make a year, think about that. And he, she poured it all over his head, filled the whole room with perfume. And how did the disciples respond? We, we learned later that it was actually Judas who said it rebukes her, humiliates her. Says, what a waste. What are you doing, woman? That's kind of, how do you think she felt? But Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He jumps right in. He immediately defends her. He says, you leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. What was she doing? Was she trying to earn God's favor? Was this like her attempt? This is why this is at the end of the sermon. Right, do you remember it's an unconditional covenant? Right, you remember Judas and um, 
Peter, well, Judas, that didn't go well, right? He failed. He went and hung himself. Peter, he failed. He came back and found repentance, found forgiveness, right? You turn back to God. Not all failures turn out good, right? Some people miserably fail and they run. They're so, they're so humiliated because of their pride, they won't admit anywhere. See, but in the gospel, it actually enables us to be very healing. So respond well. Do respond like Peter. But then she, she's doing this not because she's trying to earn anything. She just loves her Savior. She's doing this as a free offering of her love. Yes, her brother just been raised from the dead, Lazarus. She's doing this because she loves him. Did you know that God has graciously poured something on you far more costly than pure nard? Worth more than a year's wages. He's poured on you the blood of Christ. You are washed clean by the blood of Christ. Kids, I know that sounds weird. This is, just how the, this is how it works. Remember we said before, Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Blood, the Jews got this. That blood was required to remove the stain of sin. Jesus knew that all that we all will humiliate him, ourselves, that our hearts are worse than my dryer vent was a week ago. But he loves us. He died for us. He instituted a new covenant, a better covenant. That's not with conditions. It's not because you need to earn your way. You need to do some good deed. You need to go buy a bunch of ointment and pour it over somebody's head, right? All that, it gives us freedom. We can do those things with the right motive, not because we're trying to earn anything from God. As we wrap up, I want to challenge you again. Please stop working so hard to ensure that everyone has a great view of you. They would think well of you. It's actually, it's actually a cage. It's actually a jail cell. Trying to keep people to think well of you? Man, what a waste. I mean, eventually, eventually they're going to see, even if, if we can put makeup on. I mean, eventually, people are going to see through it, right? There's such freedom. You are a child of God. You don't have to put on a face. You don't have to pretend you have it all together. I don't and you don't, and you know it. Admit it. Admit to someone. Does anyone know the last time you lost it? I mean, is there any brother or sister that you can share that with? You should. It will do your soul good. As we humble ourselves before others, you will be able to more fully enjoy your new identity. You are redeemed, loved, forgiven, and perfect in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you gave us such examples. You gave me an example of how to humble oneself before others. For this very gospel had its sources, Peter, the man who's being humiliated, and he did not edit any of this out. For certainly he could have told Mark to leave it all out. But he didn't. Because you are glorified, not by perfect leaders, but by humble leaders. Lord, may we all be humble. May we humble ourselves before each other that we may really enjoy this new covenant. It is unconditional, without condition. Lord, please help us. I pray for my brothers and sisters that this would sink in, this passage and the reality of it. They could enjoy their new identity 
They did not earn it. They did not purchase it. But it is a meal given for them. It is a sacrifice, substitutionary atonement for them. Lord, I pray. If there, and if there's anyone here who hasn't, this isn't theirs yet. Lord, please help them. Humble themselves before you and before others submit. They need a Savior. May they be saved. We're really excited about celebrating the arrival of your son. And even as we look at the end of his life, it gives us such perspective on the beginning that he came on a mission to die, to institute this new covenant that we could all enjoy. Lord, I pray that you would, you would use this in our lives and you would use this even this week as we celebrate Christmas, that we would have all this in view, this new wonderful covenant that gives us this new identity. Please, Lord, in the name of Christ, amen.